Today's Plugged In podcast is sponsored by Volvo Cars Canada. The Volvo XC40 Recharge is Volvo's first pure electric SUV. It's a powerful drive with no tailpipe emissions featuring more than 400 horsepower and up to 335 kilometers on a single charge. And the integrated Google OS will always keep you fully connected, even without your phone. It truly is an SUV designed for the city and the rest of the planet. Visit volvocars.ca to learn more. episode of Plugged In, a post-media podcast taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. I'm your host, Andrew McCready. It seems every week we hear about some new type of electric vehicle technology, from EV hypercars to long-range batteries to super-fast chargers, that sounds like the proverbial game-changer, but just as quickly as it appears it fades into the virtual ether faster than you can say flying cars. However, there are some EV-related innovations that have enjoyed a longer shelf life, and continue to be developed in certain corners of the EV world. They just haven't made it into the mainstream. My guest today will tackle five of these much-talked-about innovations, which, if they were realized, would be bona fide game-changers. But let's just say he's not putting any money down in Vegas that you and I will see the benefits of most of them anytime soon, if ever. James Carter is Principal Consultant of Vision Mobility, a Toronto-based consultancy that specializes in helping startups, government, industry associations, and established companies better understand new mobility and how to pivot towards new opportunities. The Toronto resident has over 20 years automotive experience, including 19 years with Toyota in Australia, Japan, and North America. Thanks for joining us today, James. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Before we get to all the wonderful information you have and opinions, which I know my listeners will value, I'd like to know what the first electric vehicle you ever drove was. First electric vehicle? Hmm. I remember the EMC, uh, Electric Mobility Canada, they had a whole bunch of, of vehicles, of the modern vehicles anyway, on on display. And, uh, you know, we got to take a few of them out. There was a, a Bolt. There was a, a Ford Fusion Energy, a Nissan Leaf, and I believe a BMW i3. So that was probably the first time. So that was back in 2017. That was the first time I, I really had some good experience to to spend in a, a pure electric vehicle for, you know, more than a couple of minutes. So, you know, that time you really got a feel of, of what those vehicles were like. When you got out of them, what was your impression? Did it change your life or did you just think, wow, that's that's interesting technology? No, you know, I uh, we had a Subaru WRX at the time. So, you know, this that's a car that goes pretty good. And uh, I got back in that even after driving these kind of what people would think would be pretty mundane sort of electric hatchbacks and went, my WRX is slow and noisy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a startling moment. I I couldn't believe it. I, I thought this car was fast and quiet and good and but no, <laughs> it really did change my opinion on on what these cars were like. That's for sure. Yeah, I think that's something. Um, even people who perhaps are skeptical about electric vehicles, they can't deny after they've been in one or driven one that there is something very unrefined about a ICE engine vehicle afterwards. 
Oh, totally. Uh, we actually went back to uh, one car just before we got our uh, Model 3. And uh, my wife was on a trip. Uh, she did a, a trip to Prince Edward County uh, last summer. And then I had to hire a vehicle because I had a, some some work thing I had to do. And uh, I can't remember what the vehicle was, but I think it was like a, a Chevrolet Trax or some something, some rental vehicle. And it was terrible <laughs> like getting out of getting out of a model three and getting into that for a day was was like being sent to purgatory let's kind of talk about some of these technologies you can explain to my listeners what it is and then i'd like to kind of play a game where you tell me if this will ever happen or not <laughs> you know this is the kind of high-tech lexicon of vaporware right this idea that just because you can do something doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen <laughs> right. writ large right Exactly right, and there's some absolute favorites out there that that people love, but there's there's some problems to them. Yeah, so I have a feeling we're going to get to those right now. So uh, let's start with one that is intriguing. I first saw this in the real world uh, back in uh, Yokohama for the second generation Nissan launch, and they had a pretty cool looking kind of pad on the ground, and the car was sitting over that, and this was wireless charging. So tell us what that is. Yeah, well, wireless charging, it's basically just an upscale version of what a lot of people have with their cell phones, you know, whether that be a, a pad in the house or a pad in the car. And, and basically what it does is it uses two magnetic coils to um, create a, a charge frequency that, that allows the, the thing to charge in, in very, very simplistic terms. But what that means is that there can be some sort of uh, air separation between one charge point and, and what's being receiving it. Typically for uh, wireless charge vehicles, that's sort of in the three to six inches range. And, uh, you know, the technology works. There's no doubt about that. But there are problems that go with it. And I think it's it's those problems that when you scale it up to a, a much bigger thought process or, or roll out on a much larger scale, these problems magnify themselves. The first is uh, efficiency. Trying to push the electricity through the air, as it were, does create a natural inefficiency when you compare to a conductive or metal-on-metal -metal type charging process. So while the best chargers out there typically are between 96 and 99% efficient for conductive charging, for, for wireless charging in very, very best case lab conditions, they're getting around 85 to 90% efficiency. Now, what this means, let's just take the 90% efficiency. What this means is that let's just say you pour into your IC, into your internal combustion car, 10 litres of gasoline. So if that's 90% efficient, one litre of gasoline spills out on the ground and off it goes, you never see it again. That's what efficiency means in this context. So the higher the charger efficiency, the less virtual gasoline or less electrons that you're spilling on the ground and wasting. The problem with wireless charging is that out in the field trials that we've seen, some of the numbers that we've seen, while 90% might be achievable in the lab, they might be as low as 70 or 80% out in the wild. And one of the big reasons for that is uh, alignment. So the pad that's fitted to the vehicle needs to be in almost exact alignment within an inch or two inches uh, of the pad on the ground. And if they're not, then that efficiency drops off the, off the uh, map. So because you have to have such a fine tolerance of uh, alignment of those two pads, 
you have these problems or efficiency or it just won't charge. And, and most drivers can't align a vehicle within one inch of, a, of something that they can't see. Like, how hard is that? <laughs> so. so obviously, in terms of the efficiency, as you say, there's there's loss electrons in the air, but that also would translate to a slower charging time as opposed to a hardwired cable. Yeah, that's right. I mean, typically you see the best the best wireless charging systems out there around level two type charging. So around 11 kilowatts. Uh, I believe the BMW one is only around three. Uh, but there are some trials out there for heavier duty ones up to 200 kilowatts, but there are certainly only test cases only. Uh, and, and there's a whole bunch of other problems that go with that too. Out of 10, in 10 years, am I going to be driving my electric car into my garage onto a pad and wireless charging? Is that going to happen? Yeah, look, I, I think that there's one other really key thing uh, that we need to understand and OEM's taking it up. And the answer is a few people are having a look at it, but no one's put it really put it into production uh, beyond a trial. And because OEMs are saying, hey, there's problems, there's weight on the vehicle, there's these alignment issues, there's efficiency, we're not going to support a standard that that's, doesn't really exist at the moment. And, and that's the killer. And that's why I would only rate the viability of wireless charging right now at maybe a three or a four. Maybe some custom applications that might work, for, for instance, medium duty. But for instance, for light duty on car rollout, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good idea. And this is a great idea, too. And I think I've never seen it live, but I've certainly seen lots of video of it. And that is battery swap. Swapping. This idea that you pull your car into a, a carport, a garage, and all this stuff happens underneath where these arms take out your old battery and stick in a new one and off you go. So in terms of a five-minute turnaround, you're fully charged again and off you go. Tell us, first of all, I mean, expand on, on how that works and um, maybe who's doing that out there. So really, there's only one OEM out there that's supporting that, and that's the Chinese relative startup Neo, and they've had some good initial success with that. And I think the idea of the almost instant charge, as it were, is a pretty compelling one. But again, like wireless charging, it's a, a devil in the details type thing. You know, there's going to be really high cost infrastructure. You've got to have a piece of land and a building and a whole heap of specialized mechanical equipment underneath you have to figure out you know how this attaches to the vehicle and brings a battery in and replace it like the killer here again just like wireless charging is standardization amongst oems you have it with neo but you don't have it with anyone else and most oems see battery technology as their own they like to keep it tight they see it as a competitive advantage so there's no way in the universe that they're ever going to share this technology with anyone else so by the implicit nature of battery swapping, you're sharing it. And developing those standards around that battery and the battery management system and the vehicle are mind-bogglingly hard. So, so that's why battery swapping beyond, you know, some specialist trials or even some specialist applications like mining or some small heavy-duty applications, very, very difficult. I would rate this as a four. I do recall Musk, Elon Musk talking about it early, like maybe 10 years ago, this concept of Tesla stations doing that. But that was just, a, I guess we see battery swapping as a solution to the one outstanding issue that a lot of people have with EVs, and that is a long charge time. Right. And that's the thing. You know, obviously, we all know that Better Place went, went bankrupt trying to do this. 
Uh, Mask tried to do it again, didn't get beyond a very quick trial, and then it was all done. In fact, interestingly, the Model S is designed, the battery is designed to come out with four bolts. So they designed Model S from the start to do battery swapping, but they never did it. So I think you really got to ask that question is, is why? Where's the future in it? Yeah. And as you say, essentially, I mean, putting up charging stations at Tesla stations is one kind of commitment to land. But as you say, building, you know, these bespoke places down a highway grid across North America or across Europe is just a a very expensive enterprise. And I'm not sure if it, anybody would even do it. China, you know, they might try it with their vehicles, but doesn't seem too likely. No, no. Like besides Neo, no one's supporting it. It's, it's going to have a really tough time. Okay, so uh, a couple of four out of tens, wireless charging, battery swapping. Let's see if we can get something passing grade. Um, Okay, this is one I don't know a whole lot about, but I um, have read a little bit. But this is E-Road. What's an E-Road? So there's two different types of E-Roads on the whole. One is using a a conductive or a actual contact type system to power the truck or typically the truck. And really, this system wouldn't look a lot different to what you would see with a train or with the streetcars here in Toronto. So, you know, they have a, a pantograph above the uh, above the train or above the, the truck itself, and it goes onto a line, and uh, that connection then then powers the vehicle. Uh, the other system is a uh, inductive wireless system, so it would basically be built on the uh, wireless type principles but in one big long continuous one so a vehicle would sit over the top and be constantly charged so they're the two types of e-roads that we typically hear about and both have lots of problems (laughs) 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 the the pantograph or overhead line one uh we've seen some trials in germany and i believe sweden the what i think the companies there thinking about is that perhaps if there's one road that you know could be used a lot for for trucks for instance it might be the 401 here in Ontario that you know such a system could be erected and that trucks could stay in the lane and you know just be continuously charged but again lots of problems what happens if somehow you have to make an emergency maneuver and your truck gets tangled you know, how do you keep that truck in an exact alignment with that overhead wire? How, who's going to pay for all this expense to put all these these uh, huge line of charging up? And again, the critical one is who's supporting it. And when we look at the OEMs, there's really only two truck makers that have really expressed any desire to take it further, uh, to take it to a trial stage. And that's uh, the two Scandinavian, Scania and Volvo. So we don't see any widespread rollout uh, both on support outside of Scandinavia and Germany or the support outside of those two OEMs that we mentioned. So really, when you think about that, if you can't get widespread support for something like this, it's a dead duck. Again, it's a three. A three. So um, just to, to visualize this, are there actually tethers to the cords from the truck or is it just as almost like a wireless system? So with the one that's been proposed by uh, Scania and Volvo, it, it basically looks like a, a, a streetcar solution. Right. You're actually physically attached to the cord. Yeah, it, it, there's a physical attachment. I mean, that, that can cut, separate out as you come in and outside the line, but it's a physical connection. It, certainly the other OEMs uh, that I've spoken to have said, ah, we don't like this idea. There's all sorts of problems that could go along with that. So 
you know, the science is there to pull it off, but the, the real world application seems again, pretty, uh, pretty difficult to achieve. Exactly. And, and frankly, if we, we go down the wireless charging e-road system, it, it's probably more like a one. You just can't generate enough power, uh, something like that to keep a truck going. It, it just won't work. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get to something which I think has kind of already grown. I won't say quicker than we thought it would, but, you know, charging, charging power. We're at DC charging. We're seeing those stations come up quicker for sure. But there is this thing called ultra high power charging. What is that all about? Yeah, so ultra high power charging, there's a new standard being developed right now, specifically for trucks and heavy duty vehicles. uh, And that's called the megawatt charging standard. Now, the megawatt charging standard is being developed right now by the same people, say a group called Charin in Europe, and they're responsible for developing the CCS electric vehicle standard. So most vehicles, not Tesla, not Nissan Leaf, but any other EV has the CCS standard. Right. So this same group uh, is developing the megawatt charging standard, and it has support amongst 90 to 95% of all the truck OEMs out there. So when you have such support across OEMs, uh, and I also know that this group has uh, a lot of support from utilities, from infrastructure and EVC providers uh, to roll out this standard. So once you have such a widespread support of this, then you're going to see it happen. Now, the really cool thing about this is the power levels. They have a roadmap up to 4.5 megawatts or 1500 volt 3000 amps. So this is enormously high power. This is more than 20 times the power of a Tesla supercharger. Insane amounts of power. And uh, the obvious problem is what do you do behind the grid to make all this work where you have such an an on-off uh, switch for such crazy amounts of power to, to, to go through. But the reality is, is that for trucks is that most duty cycles are not going to need this on the road. They're just going to need it at depot charging and depot charging. You don't need these enormous amounts of power going through. So it's a really, really exciting opportunity that what it does is it allows a truck to charge within a, a driver rest break. And that allows over-the-road long-haul trucking for battery electric trucks to exist. A zero-emission emis- um, um, solution for long-haul trucks seems to be pointed towards the hydrogen fuel cells is kind of the, the way to do it simply because of the fueling. But I guess this is kind of an answer to that on the BEV side. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. The, the problem with fuel cells, they still had the big problem surrounding cost of the truck. We, we calculated that, you know, to... Hydrogen has to be under a dollar a kilogram to really be competitive with a battery electric truck. And the problem is that now hydrogen is around $17 a kilogram. So, (laughs) you know, a huge drop that we have to see to be competitive with battery electric trucks. And and the other big problem with hydrogen is that uh, 98% of hydrogen is made out of fossil fuels and not clean electricity. So there are some very, very big gaps that, that hydrogen has to overcome to to get close to battery electric. I guess what, what that speaks to, though, I mean, the ultra high power charging exploration by these companies and by these um, these development companies, it's, you know, that kind of research and development is just going to, in the long run, definitely trickle down to the, the passenger vehicle side of charging, right? I mean, there, there are lessons to be learned, obviously, in the heat management of something that, that hot, that, that powerful. 
Yes, definitely. You know, the CCO standard, I believe, has a roadmap of sort of the five to 600 type kilowatt maximum. And, you know, the Porsche and Hyundai, I believe, are up around the 350 uh, kilowatt mark now uh, that they're capable of doing. But yeah, there's all sorts of really interesting things that, you know, could trickle down into cars as well. This final one we'll talk about is one that obviously research and development, there are hundreds of companies pursuing all kinds of things in terms of uh, this. And this is kind of the idea of looking for other metals, you know, that don't have maybe the issues, definitely not the issues of cobalt, um, but the issues of lithium, the rarity, that kind of thing, kind of the emergence of new metals for batteries. Um, what, what kind of excites you out there? What are the ones that you're kind of watching? You know, <laughs> When I look at the the uh, the rollout of battery technology, uh, unless you're a real battery nerd, uh, it's it's really really easy to get lost in battery <laughs> yeah, tech. It is insanely complex, and there, the amount of different things that people are doing uh, is is just mind blowing. And you know, I I think you know what some of the core things that we're we're seeing from our side are on lithium ion the first is the reduction of cobalt uh we know a lot of the cobalt is sourced out of uh mining in, in the congo and you know while you know that is a whole different discussion right there uh with its problems and potential and other issues around supporting uh supporting that uh however certainly there is a has been a focus on reducing or eliminating cobalt out of, of batteries. Um, so, you know, that I think is, is a good thing. The other thing too, uh, on the lower cost side, particularly away from cars, uh, is the emergence and growth of the, uh, iron based batteries. Um, so that they, instead of the, the NMC or nickel metal, sorry, nickel, uh, something, something. Anyway, the typical ones that we see out there. Right. Uh, there is the, uh, these are low cost, they're less energy dense, uh, but for some vehicles that don't require uh, issues, don't have such a focus around weight, they could be a good solution. For instance, trains is definitely one of those. Um, batteries that are stationary is another one. For cars and trucks, it's a bit harder and we'll still see, be seeing them uh, uh, pursue energy density I think one thing is worth mentioning is uh, solid state batteries. You know, we hear Toyota developing them. We hear these little companies that have come up with this magic and have been sold off and, you know, have then found that technology is useless. But there is something in them. There are a lot of problems uh, basically around life and charge rate that really need to be figured out how to make the most of. But they certainly have energy, energy density is, is wonderful and fire risk is, is very, very, very low. So uh, they have great potential. There's just a lot more work needed. And I don't think we'll see anything for at least another five or six years on that. Right. And then in lithium seems to be the, the way forward into the into the mid future anyway, when it comes to electric vehicles. Yeah, on the whole, I think so. You know, there certainly are other ones that are being developed out there, you know, based on sodium or salt or, you know, all sorts of other things. Uh, flow batteries is another concept again, uh, bipolar ones. So there's all these new ideas and new technologies that are coming out, but have yet really not made a substantial impact. So uh, I think it's very quickly developing field. We're just not quite 
there for any new technology beyond what we see right now. So out of 10, what are we going to say about uh, a breakthrough battery coming, let's say, in the next decade that will kind of take us to the next the next level? You know, I can't even rate it because there's so much stuff out there. But I will say that, you know, it's a 100 it's percent guarantee that battery technology will just keep getting better, higher energy density, lower cost. That is absolutely guaranteed. All right. Well, that covers five uh, things that I don't know. I mean, I won't say that they're all vaporware, but a lot of them sound to be uh, wonderful ideas for science fiction books, but maybe not for the real world. I just realized I haven't rated the high ch- power charging. Right. Okay. Yes, you're right. We Ultra high power. Okay. Okay. I, I'm going to rate that as eight because that is really the only real window that we have so far that looks like it's technically feasible and that, uh, you know, provides a pathway forward for both cars and trucks to succeed. So I think that is a, uh, it doesn't have the same barriers that all the others had that we looked at. Well, that's nice to finish our lesson on a, on a passing grade and a pretty good one, eight out of 10. One last question for you. As I said at the beginning here, you're, you're very knowledgeable. You've been following this space. You're, you're a thinker about where, where it's going. In Canada, in your mind, what will signal EV adoption's tipping point? I mean, when will we be to a point where you look around when you walk out of your house and say, we've arrived? Yeah, that's a good question. We're forecasting that around 2030, we'll we'll see about 30% adoption uh, of new vehicles on the road. And that is very close to what BNEF is saying. So we think that that forecast is not too far off. Some are a little bit more aggressive. Some are saying 50% of new cars. Some are saying five. So, but it, it's in there. But the point is, is that even if you have take rates this high, you have to change the fleet over. And the amount of vehicles in the fleet or in the general population out there is always going to be way behind whatever the percentage of cars that we sell. So it is going to take some time for us to completely change over our fleet. Uh, you know, frankly, if we say 2040, you know, it's probably going to be in the 50 50 or 60 percent range of cars on the road that are EV. I, I do think for businesses, though, that that transformation will happen quicker than we think, and it will be a little bit slower for uh, private buyers. And the reason I think that is because uh, the pathway for EV on cost down really is, is a huge one that I think companies will be picking up in the future. That's James Carter, the Principal Consultant at Vision Mobility. Since I was a kid, I've loved science fiction, whether in books, in movies, or in my imagination. So even though most of the EV innovations James and I discuss won't ever measure up as proverbial game changers in the unfolding story of electric vehicles, I can't help but marvel at the possibility of charging my EV by just parking over a charging pad or of driving into a service bay and hearing the whirring underneath his mechanical arms swap out a depleted battery for a fully charged one. I'm sure similar sentiments are what drive the engineers and visionaries who continue to pursue these and other ideas, undaunted by the naysayers and the skeptics. For that I thank them for fueling my dreams, and probably yours. That's it for this episode. Much thanks to my guest James Carter, producer extraordinaire Darm McWanna, and you for joining me on another electrifying journey down the EV highway. We always welcome your comments and criticisms via email at pluggedinpostmedia.com. For your dose of all things automotive, be sure to check out driving.ca, where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. 
And be sure to subscribe to Plugged In wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode, and you'll also be able to listen to all the episodes from Seasons 1, 2, and 3.